Welcome to the King's Church Podcast. We are an ACC church based on the Gold Coast in Queensland, Australia. We'd love for you to join us on any given Sunday. In the meantime, we hope this message blesses you. Praise God. Well, I've been doing a series over the course of this lockdown and restricted period on the letter of Philippians. And we've called it Triumph Through Tough Times because it's written by the Apostle Paul while he's imprisoned and while he's incarcerated. Yet we can see all through it, it's known as the most joyful letter in the entire New Testament, such a positive, uplifting letter, and yet it was in the midst of him being fully restricted. And so there's so many lessons that we can learn from that, and that's why we called it Triumph Through Tough Times. Today I want to read a verse which is one of the most well-known verses from this letter, and it's in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, and it says this. It says, Finally, brethren... Whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Title of my message today is Seven Things to Think About. Let's pray. Father, I just ask and pray right now that for every single person watching this, that you would help them, give them the tools that they need to live a peace-filled life, Lord God, and that they'll be able to take control of their thinking. I thank you and praise you for that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned before, this was a letter written by the Apostle Paul. And so essentially, whenever someone in the Bible writes a letter, there's a number of different agendas that they're trying to deal with. And so with this, there's a number of purposes for the reason why he's writing this. And one of the major reasons for why he's writing this is he's trying to address and deal with the issue of division that is starting to happen in this church. And so here in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, it's kind of like his antidote and solution for dealing with the division that he's hearing about in the life of that church. We know for a fact that he is definitely dealing with division because there's a number of different references throughout the letter. In fact, he actually names two of the ladies earlier, Euodia and Syncata, a few verses before, who are actually being divisive in the church and he actually publicly calls them out. So we see that he's writing to the Philippians. They are his friends. He has a great heart for this church but he's also trying to address this issue of division. And here in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, is actually his antidote for dealing with the division that was starting to happen in this church. So we can see that one of the key aspects to dealing with that issue was actually for people to control their thinking. Also too, this is a great encouragement for us because it actually tells us that Paul expects that we can actually control our thinking in such a way as what he's telling us to do. And so I want to talk to you today about a number of ways that he says here, seven keys, seven things to think about that would help us to control our thinking. Maybe where you are right now, you've been a lot more isolated than you were before. And so you might actually be struggling with your thoughts. You might be struggling with bringing your thoughts into captivity. You might be struggling with the way that you're thinking. And so here are some keys that Paul gives us that I want to help you to apply to your life as well, that we can help us to control our thinking. The first thing is this, says in Philippians chapter 4 verse 8, He says, finally, brethren, whatever things are true. The first thing that we need to think about is what's true. Meditate on what's true. Or another way of putting it, don't meditate on things that you don't know to be true. How much stress, worry and anxiety is spent by us worrying about things that never actually materialise? 
worrying about things that actually aren't true. So there's so much wasted energy we can have when we start worrying about things that are beyond our control or worrying about potential outcomes that never actually manifest. That actually one of the keys to living a great peaceful life and control our thinking is to meditate on what's true. In fact, if you find yourself stressed about something, why don't you ask yourself the question, is that actually true? Am I actually perceiving this the right way? Because so often we spend a waste a lot of time meditating on things that we don't know to be true. It's really interesting at this time right now, um, and uh, you will see on social media and that sort of thing, there's a whole lot of conspiracy theories about what's happening right now across the world. That so often people say, well, I've got a friend of a friend who's in the medical industry, or I know of a friend's brother who's involved with the government, or someone I know visited China. This is what's really happening. And so often we get caught up and get so certain about things that we don't know to be true. And our thinking can take Take us into a place that's completely false. I'm not saying that there is not an element of truth to things that are being put out there right now. But what I am saying is that you probably don't actually know for sure that it's true. And so I think it's not wise to spend a whole lot of time wasting our time thinking about things that we don't know to be true. Conspiracy theories or what we think people's motives or intentions are. It's a whole lot of waste of time. It removes a whole lot of joy from our lives when the reality is we don't know that to be true. That can even happen in our everyday life. We can perceive how people think about us and that might not actually be true. Someone might do not do something where they thought they should do. Someone might not respond to us that the way that they don't that they think uh, that may not respond to us the way we think they should. And so we might be building this whole world, this whole web of lies on things that we don't know to be true. I actually had someone say to me once that they thought I didn't like them because they said that I that I ignored them one time. And the reality is I don't even actually remember ignoring them. I don't even remember bumping into them. And yet they built this whole thing about how Pastor Ben hates me and he, because of that time he ignored me. And that was a whole lot of wasted energy because the reality was it wasn't true. Now, unless I had gone to them and actually said, you know what, I just want to let you know, I hate your guts. Unless I said that, then it's not true. Don't waste any time thinking about it. Sometimes as well in our self-image, sometimes because of the way we think about ourselves, it could frame the way we think and cause us to act in ways that we look back at it later on, we can be embarrassed about or just think, why do I even go there? One of the greatest guards we should have on our thinking is whenever we start meditating on something, asking ourselves, is this really true? That goes towards rumours, that goes towards gossip, If someone says something or this person thinks this, if you don't know for sure, I encourage you to discard that thought. Stop thinking about it because the Bible here says meditate on what's true. Interestingly enough, back into the context of this text, the Apostle Paul is writing to people who were being divided. So obviously gossip, slander, misinterpretation of people's motives were all causing issues in the life of the church. And the first thing he says to them is stop it. Meditate on what's true. If it's not true, stop thinking about it. Some of you at home worried about the future. I'm not gonna, I'm gonna lose my house. I'm gonna lose this. I'll never get another job. If you don't know that's true, stop thinking about it. 
Don't waste your time and energy on things that are not true. Instead, spend time getting things from God about the things He wants you to do in the future. He says the first thing we need to meditate on is meditate on what's true. The second thing that we need to meditate on, He says, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, Whatever things are noble. So the second things we, second thoughts we need to think of is noble thoughts. Now, what does that mean? Well, noble thoughts is the way that we actually think about other people. Or more specifically, don't entertain thoughts of acting dishonourably towards someone else. So there might be times when you have a thought of someone has done something to you and you're thinking, this is what I want to do to get back at them. He is saying, don't entertain those thoughts. Interestingly enough, back into the context of this scripture, he's dealing with division in the church. Obviously, he's saying to them, don't entertain those thoughts of entertaining, of being dishonourable towards someone else. And so a classic example of this is actually the story in Genesis of Cain and Abel. And they are the sons of Adam and Eve. And the scripture tells us that they both gave an offering before the Lord. Cain, go, uh, Cain actually gave uh, of, his, uh, of, his, uh, of, of his grain and of his wheat. And Abel gave the best of his flocks. And the Bible says that God rejected Cain's offering, but accepted Abel's. And so what happened was Cain got so upset and so offended at Abel. Isn't that funny? He, Abel's blessed and he's upset at Abel and he's jealous of him. That's a bad start right there. But he actually starts thinking about how he's going to harm Abel. And interestingly enough, the Lord comes to Cain and says to him, be careful, don't keep thinking like this. Sin is crouching at the door. What's he saying? That the enemy is trying to get into your life through these thoughts that you have of offence and wanting to harm someone else. Well, eventually what happens is Cain actually kills his brother Abel. And the Bible says that Cain lives a cursed life as a result. How did it all start? That horrific outcome all started with his thinking. It all started with meditating on wanting to harm someone else, of wanting to get back at someone else, of wanting to pull someone else down that he was jealous of. And he starts entertaining these thoughts and eventually those thoughts give birth to action and that action actually gives birth to sin. In the same way, we need to be careful about our thoughts towards other people. We need to think nobly towards them. Don't entertain the thought of taking advantage even of opportunities to pull someone else down or to harm them. A classic example of this as well is David and Saul. David was to be the next, the second king of Israel. Saul was the first king of Israel. And because of Saul's jealousy of David, Saul wanted to kill David and he pursued him. And then one day that Saul's men were looking for David and David was very, very close. He was actually staying in the cave right near where Saul's men were looking for him. Saul decides that he needs to go to the bathroom. And so he goes, well, there was in a bathroom there and he needed to relieve himself and he goes to the cave and goes to relieve himself right near where David is. David is so close that he's able to cut the cloak, the corner of Saul's cloak. 
And some of David's men said to him, see, God has put your enemy in your hand. This is your opportunity to kill him and to take him out. And David said, no, I'm not going to touch God's anointed. And even though the opportunity came, he did not take advantage of that. Even though his enemy was within his reach, he didn't take advantage of that. Why? Because he didn't entertain those thoughts of acting dishonourably towards somebody else. He wanted to keep his thoughts noble. In the same way, you're in a danger zone if you're forever thinking and consumed with someone and thinking about how you're going to get back at them, how you're going to take advantage of them, how you want to deal with them. That can consume you, rob you of your joy, rob you of your peace. And he is saying here, we need to be careful to make sure that our thoughts are noble, which means not acting dishonourably towards somebody else. The next thing that he says is number three. He says, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are just. In other translations of the Bible says, whatever things are right. Now, what this is talking about, he's saying is whatever things are just, he's talking about thinking justly or rightly about other people. Remember once again, his whole purpose for writing this was to deal with the issue of division. And so he is saying to them, you've got to think rightly or justly about others. What it essentially means is, do not judge other people's motives. Do not judge other people's motives. Oh, the real reason why they did that was because. That's what cynicism is. It's never nice being around a cynic. They're always judging other people's motives. Oh, the real reason why you did this was because of this. And they act like they know people's hearts. That's what a cynic is. A cynic is forever questioning and judging other people's motives. Obviously, if someone is consistently cynical, it's because they've been hurt and wounded in the past. And so that's why they forever tar, they might tar other people with the same brush according to their experiences. But here he is saying is, whatever is just, do not judge other people's motives. Don't be like that. Don't forever think that you know why they're doing what they're doing, putting a negative spin on it. Don't do that because that can continue to breed, break down in relationships and that sort of thing. One of the things I've learned is this, and that is that to not receive a negative report about someone that I don't know. The amount of times that I have allowed other people to give an impression of someone to me that I found out later wasn't true is incredible. I remember one time I was preaching at a conference and when you preach at a conference, there's a number of different speakers. And, and I remember there was one particular speaker who was on the, you know, preaching, um, you know, who was, who was down as one of the guests that I'd heard of, but I'd never met personally. And to be honest, I had heard a lot of negative things about them, about them being high maintenance, about them not really being interested in the other speakers when they're there and that sort of thing. And, and I was even, there was even people at the conference that were saying the same thing to me. They were saying, oh yeah, this guy is going to do this. You know, if he's preaching before you, he's going to probably take more of your time because that's what he does. And, and I never actually met the guy, but I had this entire, his, I had, his reputation was something that I just thought people are saying saying this about him, this is probably the way he is. But I remember uh, I was there earlier in the conference. This particular spe speaker came a little bit later on in the conference. Uh, when he arrived, I found him incredibly pleasant. Uh, on the night, that first night he was there, I was down to speak um, that night. And so we were staying at the same hotel. So when I went down into the lobby, uh, I was going to get driven to the venue. And when I got there, this other speaker who wasn't 
down to speak was actually sitting in the lobby as well. And I remember thinking, well, that's not what people told me he would do. They told me he only goes to his sessions. And the driver came and spoke to the other speaker and says, oh, look, you didn't have to come tonight. It's just Ben speaking tonight. And he says, no, I wanted to come and hear my brother Ben. I remember thinking to myself, this is not the guy. This, is, this guy is not acting like how I thought he would act like. The next day he got up and he was preaching his session and, and what had happened was that probably the session before it was going a little bit long and so he was technically only left with about 20 minutes to preach. I remember someone saying to me, no, no, he'll, he'll take longer. He'll, I was going to preach next. He'll take some of your session. He won't preach for just 20 minutes. He got up and ministered and right on the 20-minute mark, he just closed it down and finished up, even though in some ways he probably had a right to keep going. I remember thinking to myself... That's not the guy that I thought that people had told me about. And I realised and I felt really, I felt a little bit guilty because I realised I had prejudged this guy without actually ever having met him. And so I realised right then is that my thinking about someone else's motives, about how someone else is, was completely informed by what other people had said to me. And so now I've had to guard my thinking a little bit and be very careful and not to judge people according to how what other people say, but also be careful about judging other people's motives. The next thing that we have to be, uh, the next thing we have to think about says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, he says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, Whatever things are pure. So the fourth thing we have to meditate on is purity, pure thinking. Now, when it says pure, that's not talking about thinking about things that are morally pure. That's not talking about clean thinking. He's actually talking about motives. So Paul is saying previously, just the word before, he's saying we're not supposed to judge other people's motives. But he says we are supposed to make sure our motives are pure. So what that means is we need to make sure that we keep our own agendas out of the mix. That is what he is saying there. Once again, the context of this, he is actually talking about a church where there's been division. In many of the New Testament letters, he addresses the issue of division. And one of the common factors is actually people having their own agendas and their own impure motives. In fact, last year at church, we did a series on the book of James. And he writes James to deal with the issue of selfish ambition that has gotten into the life of the church, saying that people were doing things from impure motives. So watch this. God doesn't want us to judge other people's motives, but he does want us to judge our own. And God actually judges our motives. Bible says in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 2, it says, All a man's ways seem innocent to him, but motives are weighed by the Lord. God weighs our motives. And I have found personally in my life that very often that God has waited for me to have a pure heart and pure motives before he releases a level of promotion in my life. Psalm says this, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands 
and a pure heart. So, so often God waits for our heart and our motives to be pure before He can trust us with the promotion and the next level that He actually has uh, for our lives. And so in many ways, we need to make sure our heart's right. That's why, the Bible, that's why, the, um, that's why David, when he says in Psalm 51, and he realised he committed sin, he says, God, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. He had a revelation that his heart wasn't pure and he knew he needed God's help to help him in that area. And so often I've found in my life that there's been times when very often God has made me a promise and I've sought to strive for that promise. But I found so often that God has released his promise to me after the point I'm kind of over it. After the point it's kind of, uh, after the point where I'm really driven for it and my motives have been purified, so often that's when God has trusted me uh, with even greater because he's wanted to deal with my heart motive first. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. He says we need to have pure motives when our interactions with other people and also in our thinking keep our motives pure. And I firmly believe that God is waiting for that very often just before a promotion, God wants to deal with motives in our heart to release that next level in our life. A classic example of this is Joseph in the Old Testament. Joseph had a dream from God. He was one of Jacob's 12 sons. And, uh, and he had, um, you know, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And he had a dream from God that his brothers were going to bow down to him and his family were going to bow down to him. And yet from that moment, he had a number of years of incredible difficulty. His brothers sought to kill him and then eventually sold him into slavery. Then when he went into slavery, he was unjustly accused and then sent into prison. And he was in prison for a number of years. And then one day the baker and the butler came to him and they asked him to interpret their dream. And so he interpreted their dreams and, and basically said to the butler who's going to be released, why don't you go and, and when you go, please don't forget me. But later on, the butler had forgotten about him. And so what happened then was that a few years later that Pharaoh had actually had a dream himself. Now, when, uh, when, uh, when the butler first left Joseph to go back to his position, Joseph said to him, he said, listen, can you put a good word in for me? I don't deserve being here. It's not my fault. And when they had asked about a dream interpreter in the beginning, Joseph said, bring them to me. I can interpret their dream. And yet when the butler left, he completely forgot all about Joseph. A few years later, the Pharaoh had a dream. And he needed someone to interpret it. No one could interpret it. The butler finally remembered. He said, that guy in prison, Joseph. He said, I can't believe it. I forgot all about him. He can interpret your dream. And so Pharaoh went to see Joseph in prison and said, I, can, I hear you can interpret dreams. And Joseph said, it's not me, it's the Lord. Wow. Notice the change in attitude after a couple of years. First, the first time he was like, bring them to me. I'm the man. Put a good word in for me. I don't belong here. But then this time, he's got an audience with Pharaoh and he gives all the praise and all the glory to God. He says, it's not me. And then he interpreted Pharaoh's dream and then overnight he got promoted to become the second most powerful man in Egypt, making him the second most powerful man in the world and his dream got fulfilled. But I believe God waited until his motive was pure before God released him into that next level. Here when the Apostle Paul says whatever is pure... He's talking about our own motives. The fifth thing is this. 
He says in verse 8, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report. Now, I've kept those together. And the reason why I've put lovely and good report together, so the fifth thing is whatever's lovely and good report. The reason why I've put those together is because those words are not found anywhere else in the New Testament. Now, they were words, sons, the Greek word euphemos, which was something that talks about whatever, you know, and that's whatever is lovely, whatever is good. Those were words that were common in secular society, but they were not common in the church. They were secular terms. So when Paul writes this, he would have really got their attention because they are not words he would normally use. They were secular terms. It would almost be like if the Apostle Paul wrote this letter and he said, Paul, and instead of saying an apostle of Jesus Christ, he said a CEO of Jesus Christ. If you read that, you would have thought, well, (laughs) that's not a term that they would normally use in the church. It was a secular kind of term. It would be true, but it was a secular term. In the same way, that's what Paul is saying here. It would have got their attention. Lovely, good report. They're not words that we use in the church. But he's actually basically saying to them, if something is lovely and if something is good report, even if it's something that is secular in the world, it's okay. Why is he saying that? Because he's dealing with the issue of legalism. Legalism. So legalism is something that can creep into the life of a believer. That you start having kind of like a ladder of, or, you know, like, you know, levels of what is spiritual and what isn't. And sometimes we can call things sinful that actually aren't. That's really what legalism is. I believe that legalism in this, in this letter is something that is actually really addressed by the Apostle Paul. It says in Philippians chapter 3 verse 2, he actually talks about mutilators of the flesh. So basically what he's saying is that there were obviously people who from a Jewish extraction that had come into the church and they're asking them to do things that are now no longer required and making them look like that they're more spiritual than everyone else. Uh, Not only that, Philippians, if you do a study of it, it's the only letter in the entire, sorry, he's got two, Philippians and Philemon are the only letters that the Apostle Paul writes where he doesn't mention the word sin. Every other letter he talks about sin. He doesn't talk about sin in the letter of Philippians. Why? Because I believe that one of the issues he's dealing with is he's dealing with legalism and somehow some kind of spiritual elitism that was coming into the church and a super spirituality. Don't get me wrong. God has called us to live a holy life. But there's a difference between legalism and holiness. Legalism says it's a sin to go to the movies. Holiness says it's okay to go to the movies, just, but just be careful about the ones that you watch. Legalism says that you're supposed to wear a certain kind of dress. Holiness says, no, no, it's okay to, you know, you can kind of wear whatever you want, but just as long as it's not things that would cause someone else to stumble or something like that. Legalism takes things that are holy and pushes them to the nth degree. It's the closest thing to being a Pharisee 
uh, as what we find actually in the New Testament. And legalism can cause division amongst people. It can kind of say, well, you're not as holy as me because you dress like this. Well, you're not as holy as me because you do this. And it starts causing divisions uh, in the life of people and that sort of thing. Whereas Christ caused us to be free from the curse of the law. And so as a result of that, that he is trying to address that issue of legalism. Legalism will actually rob you of your joy. I know in my life, there were many, there have been a number of times historically in my life where I was very legalistic. And because I was legalistic, I became very judgmental of others. But I also felt really kind of miserable in terms of my relationship with God. I went through a phase there um, and, you know, when I was at Bible college and God had really challenged me to be generous and I was giving away a lot of what I had and giving away a lot of money and that sort of thing. But I got to the point where subconsciously I felt it was wrong or a sin for me to have anything nice or anything more than the basic essentials of life. And I remember one day... I just so happened to have a bit of extra money and I was out shopping and I wanted to buy some new jumpers. And so I bought two new jumpers and they were awesome. They looked really nice, so brand new. Hadn't brought any brand new clothes for about two, three years, that sort of thing. And I wore them and I took them back to my uh, dormitory room. But I felt so guilty about having them. I felt like it was wrong that I should have them because I'd had this like legalistic thinking come into my life that actually I went and I gave them away to other people. And I look back at it now and I realise how immature I was, that I was, had becoming legalistic and I was becoming miserable all because I just thought I wasn't worthy or deserving of those things. Since then, I've realised and become a bit more balanced. Just like it says in 1 Timothy 6.17, the Apostle Paul says, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, not to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. We can enjoy our lives. If it's lovely, if it's good report, then feel free to enjoy it. That's what he's saying there. We need to keep our thinking free from legalism. The sixth thing that he says is this. He says, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are good report, if there is any virtue, if there is any virtue, the sixth thing that we have to think about uh, is virtue. We need to have virtuous thinking. What is that talking about? Virtuous thinking actually talks about moral virtue or moral purity. So he is saying there that we actually have to make sure and guard our thinking and not dwell on things that are too, not spend too long dwelling on things that are sinful, that we need to keep our thoughts pure. The Bible says we have to bring every thought into captivity, that we are to renew our minds by the washing of the Word. One, one of the things we have to renew is our identity in Christ, who we are now, who He has called us to be, the plans and pr uh, future that He has for us. But also too, it talks about capturing sinful thoughts in our minds to make sure that we don't dwell on them. Because if you dwell on something, then it can become a desire and then that desire 
desire becomes an action and that action can lead to sin. And then it says in the book of James, sin can lead to death. And it all starts with our thinking. So part of the Christian life is actually weeding the garden of our mind so that we don't dwell too long on sinful thoughts. You know, you can't always control the first thought that comes into your mind. How often have I know myself, there's been plenty of times where a thought has come into my mind that was sinful uh, and wrong. But what you need to, what I've had to learn to do is not dwell on it and not think, well, that thought popped into my mind, you know, it's stuck in there. No, 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 we can bring every thought into captivity. We can capture those thoughts. And so what one of the good disciplines of the Christian life is not only to, when you get a thought like that, capture it and then kind of discard it, discard it. John Wesley said this, he says, I can't, talking about our thinking, he said, I can't stop a bird flying over my head, but I can stop it making a nest in my hair. What is he saying? He says, I can actually, I can't, you can't always control your first thought. Sometimes a wrong thought comes in there, but you can control your second thought. And eventually your second thought will become your first thought. That is what the Apostle Paul is saying here. He says, whatever is virtuous, don't dwell on sinful thoughts. Don't dwell on lustful thoughts. Don't dwell on covetous thoughts. He says, you can capture those and discard them. Don't do that because if you dwell on them, they become a desire and they can lead you to do things that you actually regret later on. Whatever is virtuous. And the last thing says is this. He says, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, Meditate on these things. If there's anything praiseworthy. Now, I've kind of got two little interpretations for this. Remember, think about it. The context of this passage is he's dealing with division in the life of a church. And he says, meditate on whatever is praiseworthy. So what he is basically saying to them is, don't be continually fault-finding with your brethren. Have you ever met someone who's just a fault-finder? That literally... You can be with them and 99% of the things could be right and they always focus on the thing that's negative, forever picking fault. In fact, I have found people who are manipulative are really good at that. If they want to take control over you or control over someone, all they do is, and we've all got faults, they just focus on the fault. And the reason why they focus on the fault because it means it gives them a position of power over that person. I've seen that happen many, many times. And here when he's dealing with an issue of division, People can cause division by finding fault with others, forever focusing on the negative and overlooking the positive. And yet here he says, whatever is praiseworthy. Don't forever be fine. Don't be that person who's forever finding fault in every environment. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't, you shouldn't address issues that are wrong. I'm not saying that. And he's not saying that. It doesn't mean you should be blind to improvements. But if the whole tenor is majoring on minors then that is something that we need to avoid. Don't be forever finding fault. Meditate on what's praiseworthy. Meditate on the positive. Don't spend your whole time harping on the negative or the one little thing that you don't like. Spend time focusing on the positive aspects, whatever is praiseworthy. That is what he is saying here. And when I think about that, another interpretation, an additional interpretation of that is this, that if we want to meditate on what's praiseworthy, 
then there is one who's always worthy of our praise, and that's the Lord. The other thing that uh, Philippians is known for is the amount of times it talks about praise and rejoicing. Rejoice in the Lord, he says, and again I say rejoice. What he's saying is that we need to put our focus on the Lord, put our focus on Him. Take your focus off your issues and put them on Him. That's why you've heard me say many times before that the Scripture says to magnify the Lord. What that means is put your attention on Him and magnify Him. Don't magnify all your problems. Don't magnify the thing that's going wrong. Put your focus on Him and magnify Him. And if you do that, you'll be able to help guard your thinking. If you do that, you'll be able to help keep, your, keep in a place of peace. If you're ever finding fault in things that are negative or things that are wrong, then that's going to rob you of your joy and it's going to rob you of your strength. But if you keep your eyes fixed on Him and you keep your praise fixed on Him, you'll be amazed at what happens in your life. So just in a few moments, we're going to finish by doing that. We're going to finish by praising God. And wherever you are, take your eyes off your problems and put your eyes on Him. You might be going through a tough time, just like the Apostle Paul is. One of the key disciplines that he had was this rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. It's not talking about a one-time experience. He's not saying just praise God once. Otherwise, he would just say joyce. But he doesn't say joyce. He says rejoice. Do it again. Keep on praising. And so in just a moment, we're going to praise God again. And as we do, He's going to fill your heart with life, joy and strength. He's going to help you to guard your thinking so that you can sail through this season coming out stronger than you did before. Rejoice in the Lord. Can I say rejoice? Whatever is praiseworthy, meditate on these things. But before we do, maybe you're watching this and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Maybe you've tuned in today and I want to thank you for doing that. And you have, not given, you have not got a relationship with God. You know, the Bible says that Christ died, took the, took the punishment for our sin, that we might have a relationship with God. And if you have watching this and you haven't given your life to Christ, then we'd love to lead you in that. All you've got to do to start off your journey is by saying a prayer. I'm going to lead you in that prayer. And also, too, if you're watching us on Facebook, if you're watching us on live.kings.org.au, you can put in a comment. Or on live.kings, you can put the hands raised little icon and we can have one of our pastors talk to you about the decision that you're wanting to make. But before we do, why don't we just pray this after me. Dear Lord Jesus, forgive me for being a sinner. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. I ask you to come into my life, be my Lord, be my Saviour, be my best friend. Help me to live for you all the days of my life. And I thank you that this morning, I'm joining your family. If you uh, prayed that prayer and you want to give your life to Christ, click that icon, the hands raised icon on our live.kings.org.au or why don't you put a comment on our Facebook page and we'll have one of our pastors contact you. But as I said before, he says, whatever is praiseworthy, meditate on these things. So wherever you are right now, why don't you lift your hands, lift your heart and we're going to praise him because above all else, he is worthy of all praise. Thank you so much for joining us. Stay tuned for new messages weekly. You can keep updated on what's happening in the life of King's Church by following us on social media at King's Church GC. Be blessed.